0: This is a podcast from Kingdom People Church in Harare, Zimbabwe. For more details, please go to www.kingdompeoplechurch.org. So we have reached the very final uh, session in our series on the Creed. And uh, it's landed in my court to finish it off for you. And uh, just to talk about the last sentence, and then we're also are going to move into our statement of faith. Because what a lot of people don't know and don't realize is that many churches have a statement of faith that is built on the Nicene Creed. So us teaching about it is just giving you a foundation for what we, what we actually believe as a church and I've <clears throat> I've modified a couple and I've added one in. And you'll find that there, there are a few statements in our statement of faith that um, you don't see in the Nicene Creed. Because, well, the Nicene Creed was written in 352, I think it was. And there's been um, several hundred years of history and developments taking place. And so there are things that are, are now more pertinent that we need to make statements on. Um, that wouldn't have appeared in the the Nicene Creed. So the last line of the Creed says, I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life in the world to come. Now when you say one baptism, it, it often inspires a little bit of confusion because the Bible actually talks of seven different baptisms and uh, there was the baptism of Moses, and there was a whole bunch of other ones. But a lot of them were, were before Christ. Um, even, well, before Christ's ministry. So John the Baptist would have been uh, the last one that appeared before, before Christ. But after that, uh, well, let's read in, in 1 Corinthians 12. Just as a body, though one has many parts... But all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given to the one spirit to drink. And even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. I highlighted that verse 13 because I wanted it to stand out and say that we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. To an outsider looking in, they look at the church, and they go, hang on, but there's, there's Catholics, there's, there's Methodists, there's Pentecostals, and inside there there's hundreds, and then there's loads of charismatic churches, and it looks so fragmented. And we like to say it this way, that we are one body. We, we may have differences in doctrine, We may have different emphases on teaching. We may have different flavors in worship or style, but the object of the exercise is the glorification, the acknowledgement of Jesus Christ as Lord, and that through him is the way of salvation. And baptism into Christ is the way to salvation. Now, straight away, you're thinking about water, I know, but essentially Water baptism, oh, I don't want to jump ahead. Let me go back. I'll talk about water baptism in a bit. Paul taught that when one believes this gospel, and I've copied this off somebody else's website because it was, I couldn't have worded it better, so I thought I'd just use this. Paul taught that when one believes this gospel, that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, he is baptized by the Holy Spirit. That's going to have to change a little bit of our radical thinking here, but bear with me. With this act, God identifies the believer with Christ and he becomes a member of the body of Christ, i.e. the church. God sees him as sharing, being identified in Jesus' death and resurrection. Water baptism is a sign of our identification with Christ as a believer. Water, Water baptism does not save us, but it is an essential part of our testimony that we have been saved. So we've got to get our head around the idea because sometimes we just read the word baptism and we automatically think water. I grew up in a Presbyterian church. Um, I spent the first 17 years of my life attending Presbyterian church. And when I was four months old, I was baptized, or so they say, by sprinkling. Well, I... 18 years later, when I I turned 18, chose to be baptized by full immersion in water. Now, the reason, of course, what the Presbyterians and and many other uh, denominations do is that you get to a certain age, maybe 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and they put you through what they call confirmation. Now, I don't hold uh, to the doctrine the way it's taught, because what they say is, a believer needs to be baptized, So in order to be baptized, you have to be a believer. A four-month-old baby doesn't know what it believes. It has reflexes that say, I need to drink milk, I need to fall asleep, and I need to soil my diaper. Repeat. And after a while, we add in another loop that says, make noises, begin to talk, begin to walk. But essentially, a, a, a baby cannot believe but later, the baby gets an opportunity to grow up, thank goodness. And uh, the baby gets a chance to say, well, I'm not a baby anymore. I'm actually now of, some, of age where I understand. I understand the gospel. I understand that Jesus Christ died for me. Therefore, I would like to publicly confirm my faith. And that is what confirmation is all about. So at 15, I attended confirmation classes. I don't recall very much of confirmation classes, but the girl that I always sat with was a tomboy and used to talk about Kawasaki motorcycles. I remember that really well because that identified with me. So I went through the confirmation classes, six weeks of them. I attended a confirmation service and I was allowed to take communion. And, uh, A couple of years later, I went to university, I attended a charismatic church and somebody started talking about baptism by full immersion. And suddenly it all makes sense. I'd been a believer pretty much my whole life. I made a a, a public declaration and a confession of Christ and I received him as my Lord and Savior when I was 10. Uh, For some of you, that was before you were born. And it was actually before Pastor Alan. (laughs) But, um, I'm not boasting. But What made sense to me was that I had to make a public statement to witnesses that I was going to live a Christian life. Because even though I'd been confirmed, I'd still got clubbing on a weekend. I'd I'd have a few drinks on a Saturday night, even under age, And and then on Sunday morning, I'd go to church and I'd ask God to forgive me for what I did the night before so I could start the, the week with a fresh sheet of paper and blot it by Saturday. And go to church on Sunday, press repeat. At 18, when I got baptized in water, I realized that I could no longer, I could no longer, God spoke to me personally, live that life. I had to say at public declaration that I actually am born again, that I actually do believe this thing, and I do want to live a life that is pleasing to Jesus Christ. And so that, for me, was what water baptism was all about. Let's rewind to the whole process of being born again. Now, if you're a good Calvinist, which I know many of us aren't, especially Alan, they believe that man is so dead in his sin that he cannot even possibly respond to the gospel, even if there's no other choice. And in order to respond to the gospel, in order to receive Christ, first thing that happens is that the Spirit comes on you and regenerates you enough to be able to receive the gospel because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And then you are able to make a declaration of faith. And, make a, a, and accept Jesus Christ as your savior. Because now the Holy Spirit has made you alive. Now I don't adhere to that. I'm not going to say it's a little rubbish. But I, I don't know if I really believe that. Because when it comes to salvation. I'm a little bit more in the other camp. Which is called Arminianism. Which says that everybody has the ability to receive Christ. That yes God foreknows I'm not going to get into too much theology here and I might get into trouble. But God foreknows who will be born again, but everybody has the opportunity. And that the word of God is alive and powerful and can, in fact, penetrate our dark, dead hearts to revive us enough to say, I receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's what I believe. And I'm not making that doctrine because if, if, if you want to go Calvinist, if you want to take a view that's, that's uh, somewhere in between... I'm okay with that, as long as we understand that a man must receive Jesus Christ and must make a public declaration of the fact. So, when we get born again, the Holy Spirit moves on us to regenerate our spirit. Reformed theologians will say that that is baptism of the Holy Spirit. We, charismatics, say that that's another experience later. And it, it really becomes a, a hair-splitting thing on terminologies later. But what Paul says, what this little uh, passage indicates, is that we are baptized in the Holy Spirit in order to be born again. And that's how we get scriptures that say, you must first be baptized in order to be born again. Unless a man is baptized, he cannot be saved. Yeah, I'm paraphrasing hugely, but we'll get on to that a bit later. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, that we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Reformed theologians call the infilling of the Holy Spirit. It's another gift that we get. And we as the church, as Kingdom People Church, believe that does happen. I believe that by experience. And many of us here today will say, yeah, yeah, I I did get born again and later received uh, a gift of the Holy Spirit. Which we may have been taught was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We may have been taught was the infilling of the Holy Spirit. But what happened was we experienced something. That made a difference in our lives. So like I said. I got born again at 10. Uh, I had attended church. I had made very verbal declarations. I remember running around. The church garden. Shouting I love God. I love Jesus. When I was maybe 6 or 7. And for me that was true. It was real. But I realized that I had to make a declaration of my faith. So one day I'm uh, at. A religious instruction class. In grade six at Hatfield Primary School, for those of you who really want to know, um, a little Baptist missionary lady teaches us about being born again. She did it for several weeks in a row. And every week, I felt something inside my heart saying, you need to do this. Yes, you go to church. Yes, you believe God. But you need to do this. You need to make this declaration. So after that, I think it was the third week, I went up to her and I said, I, I want to do this born again thing. And she took me outside into the corridor. There was a low wall on a, like a veranda that we all used to walk between classes in. And we sat there and prayed straight after class. And I remember going home. So that was a, probably a 10 o'clock in the morning lesson just before break. I remember going home that day. We used to take uh, Salisbury United Omnibus Company, which no longer exists, but we used to take that bus home. And I used to walk the last maybe 500 meters from the bus stop to my house. Being full of joy. Full of joy. I had never in my life experienced anything like that. It wasn't just fun. It wasn't, you know, I got a nice present. This was something that was deep in my heart. And I remember walking around the corner saying, this is the best day of my life. 18th of October, 1974. I had extra spring in my step and I didn't take Dr. McKenzie's veinoids. For those of you who remember the advert broke Mike. <laughs> but i certainly i knew the experience and years later a friend of mine who, who who worked for a church said to me it was kind of a general conversation he said how many of us remember the day we got born again i go "Yep." how many of you remember what you wore that day well uh, standard i was wearing a school uniform how many of you remember the songs we sung? well we didn't sing any songs how many remember the lights and the music and you know the what as he, as he started talking about that, I remember that I don't remember much about the classroom. I, don't, I remember the lady's name was Miss White. That was all I could remember. I, uh, she had curly hair and glasses. The rest of it is oblivion. It's gone. But what has never faded was what God did in my heart. So... 18 years later, when I got water baptized, I also realized I needed, a um, they talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but I realized I needed that thing too. So I went to church, they had a prayer line, and well, I didn't agree with the methodology, but I know I left that place with something extra. I came out of the game, yep, I got something. I definitely got something. It wasn't the same as the first experience, but it was similar. So, so when, you, when you ask me, I will tell you that something significant happened on the day I got born again. And something also significant but not as big and powerful happened the day I received the Holy Spirit with the gift of speaking in tongues. So that was my story. On purple, in Purple Book, and, and I hope that most of you have at least got to page 38, if not beyond page 38, uh... Rice Brooks makes the statement, It is not the act of baptism nor the water of baptism that saves us, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ that saves us. So when we accept Christ, the Holy Spirit baptizes us for salvation. But we are baptized in water to show the world. It's an outward sign of an inward work. And if you have not been baptized in water, it's a great thing to do because it makes this public declaration. It makes a bold statement of what you believe and you do it in front of witnesses and friends so that when they see you down at the beer hall or down the nightclub or wherever you go, they say, hey, didn't you make this public declaration by getting immersed in water? Doesn't that mean something to you? It gives them some leverage to call you to correct But when we do it, we say, this act will not save you. This action is a public declaration, an outward sign of something that God has already done in your heart. So, I gave a similar picture the last time I preached, which was five weeks ago, on um, the next part of the creed where we talk about the resurrection of the dead and the life to come. The previous picture had four blocks in it. And this is not really clear. But the very first block says creation. So this is like a timeline of God's story for this planet. We start with creation. And there's Genesis 1 verse 1. The next one is the fall. Where Adam and Eve willfully chose to become gods. And for the throne of their heart to supersede the throne of God. And thus Fall from the wonderful place of communication and fellowship that they had with God. God used to walk with them in the garden in the cool of the evening. That ceased for mankind from that point. But the next step was the incarnation. And uh, if you understand anything about uh, European languages other than English, you'll know that carne is the Portuguese word for meat. And I love the God for a piece of tenderized carne with pepper sauce quite regularly. But what it literally means is Jesus came in the flesh. So God comes in the flesh. I'll step out a little bit theologically. No, I won't. won't. But the next step from his incarnation, the God being made flesh and dwelling among us, was the act of redemption, which is where we are now. He made this Sacrifice of himself on the cross that we would be redeemed, and since that point, the earth has been in a process of redemption perhaps not the literal earth, but mankind has had redemption available to him. So we can still get born again, we can still receive the atoning work of the cross of Christ on the cross for, our, for us today. We can do that, we can do it tomorrow. We hope. We can continue doing that, and we have been able to do that for the last 2,000 years. Because that is the period we're in. But the final period is what we call consummation. People say that the Bible story is, is about a wedding. It started with a wedding with Adam and Eve in the garden. Things went a bit pear-shaped. Stuff happened. God came back and fixed us. And once he has completed the repair work, the redemption work, we will be consumed with him In marriage, we are the bride of Christ. And that will be the end of time as we know it. And you can see that um, there are a few scriptures there that you can write down. So we talk about the consummation of all things. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, I don't want to go into timelines. I don't want to go into signs. I don't want to go, because there's enough guys out there. You could sit on the internet for hours and, and watch multiple points of view about, you know, when, when the US dollar hits four cents a value based on the 1948 valuation, This is going to the whole world's going to collapse. No, we can watch them. I watched the rise of ISIS, the Arab Spring, and I thought, oh, hello, what's going on here? Is that a sign that something significant is going to happen? Well, no. It looked like it. But it wasn't it. No man knows the day or the hour of the return of Christ. So I'm not even going to go out there. But what I will introduce you to is Galactic Management Associates, a family-owned and operated business. And please watch Winky Prattney.
1: I made a card a little while ago because I fly in planes and people ask me, what do you do? I said to them, well, I tell people about God and stuff, they'd go, ah! So I, I didn't want to give them a card that had fish or crosses on it, because sometimes when you give them a card with a fish on it, they think you manage a pet shop. <laughs> and when you give them cards with crosses on, sometimes they think you're in charge of a funeral parlor. So here's my card, it's a silver spiral Nebula." Says Galactic Management Associates. <laughs> Family owned and operated. <laughs> and I have so much fun with this card. People say, "What do you do?" I say, "Well, I'm with Galactic Management Associates." And they go, "What? What, what is that?" I say, "It's a management training program." So what what is it for? I said, well, we're in training to rule and reign over the universe. <laughs> they go, uh, uh, really? Uh, how did you get into this? I said, oh, it's exceptionally costly. You know, a lot of people really like to get in, but it really is very costly. And I said, well, how big is it? I said, you wouldn't believe how big it is. Actually, one, I, don't, I don't know if anybody's going to really be able to count the number of people who are involved with this. And they said, well, how long has it been running? I said, this is actually the oldest company in existence. <laughs> and they said, well, how, how much does it cost to get in? I said, how much you got? <laughs> and they say, well, you know, who, who's in China, who runs it? I say, you mean uh, who is the, the boss of the company? And they go, uh-huh. I said, well, I don't, I don't know if you'd believe me if I told you. And they look at me, with who? And I say, have you ever heard of the big three? <laughs> See, if you have wandered in here tonight and you think Christianity is something like Rotary Club, just to make you nice and sort of upstanding citizens. God is taking a body of people and He is putting together a church and one day that church will rule and reign with Him forever. He is the head and we are His body. We're in a training program to one day spread and fill out the universe. Under our commander and our captain, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is just getting you back to where we fell. It puts you in to the training program, costs you everything you got, but the best is yet to come.
0: A light-hearted way of looking at it, but I think that few minutes summarizes pretty much what we've been trying to say for a few weeks. That. The whole reason we're here is so that we can rule and reign with him forever. His bride, him, the king, sitting on the throne. But the reason why we want to do this is because, and I showed this slide, or uh, this, these two slides perhaps together uh, a couple of weeks ago, is we need to be sure of the foundation that we're built on. And this is a game called Jenga. Some of you have seen it, and you will have heard me talk about it a couple of weeks ago. It's a tower of, uh, of blocks. Every layer is three blocks. And I don't know how many blocks there are, but you can see that probably goes up like 12 layers maybe in that picture. And the idea of the game is to take a block from the bottom and place it on the top without knocking the entire tower over. So you, you keep touching them and finding which one's loose, and then you slide that one out and put it on top. And you've got to keep this thing in balance. And of course, you can get quite high if you're really good at this, or it falls over. And as I said a couple of weeks back, there are people who say, you know, there are certain doctrines in the Bible that I find really difficult to believe. Like the virgin birth, for example. Is it really that important? And out comes one block. Did, did Jesus really come and live On the earth, and did he walk around and and preach? And did he really stay single? And did he really die on the cross? Did he really die? Because the Muslims don't believe that he did. But as we begin to doubt those things, we knock another block out and we put it on top. We begin to question a lot of things. And eventually, this tower called Our Lives is like. The one talked about a Matthew, the guy who built his house on sand. And when the storms of life come, there is nothing left of the foundational layers of your Jenga tower to stop you from falling over. You have no foundation because everything that you've believed, everything that you've been taught, you've doubted, you've questioned, you've begun to say it couldn't possibly happen. Because many of those things that we doubt, cannot actually happen in the natural and do require a supernatural work of God in order for them to come to pass. So we have to be sure of what we believe. So let's look at our statement of faith. Um, If you look at our website, uh, under vision and values, you will find our statement of faith. Um, And that is going to be updated today. It might have been updated already. But we believe... That the Bible is the inspired word of God. And while I I will say that there are things in the Bible that do appear to be impossible, that do appear questionable, that do appear lacking in detail, we have to have faith that God has told us all we need to know. It may be a precie, it may be a skeleton, it may be incomplete in detail. But it's still what we need to know to build a foundation. Now, what I will also say is that there are certain things, like creation, for example. There is no reference in Genesis as to the mechanism that God used for creation, apart from he spoke. Science may make discoveries that say, yeah, but hang on, you know, this happened, and maybe that did happen. But from, from what, I can, what I will say is, that just adds a little bit of flesh to the skeleton. The skeleton remains unchanged. God spoke, yeah. and it came to pass. Yeah. And there are many other things that we can apply that to. Um, and, and sometimes when we read the Bible, we think it's got contradictions. And yes, there are apparent contradictions, but when you study them and put them into context and, and, and understand a bit of background, you realize they're not contradictions at all. But they're fact tie up with the thing that is supposed to contradict it. So when you, when you read the Bible critically, don't just say, well, you know, it's a load of rubbish because there's things that don't make sense. We have to say, this is the basis for our life. For without it, what we have is a bunch of myths and fables. So we also believe in the Holy Trinity. We talk about that, we sang it in the song, that God is three in one, the big three that run Galactic Management Associates. The Holy Trinity, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there, I've, I've gone to great lengths to make sure that every scripture that supports our statements is on each page of this. We've taught on God the Father. We believe that God created the heaven and the earth and created man in his image. That he knows everything, has power over all things. And he's everywhere at all time, and of course, sometimes you read that and you go, "But, but, hang on! Where was God when there was a natural disaster? Where was God when, when, like, you know, the Syrians were bombing? Let me choose the correct uh, adjective: bombing the the tar out of uh, themselves. Where were ye? Where was God when ISIS was beheading Christians? We can ask those questions, but one thing that that uh, people who study this kind of stuff know and say is that in times of great persecution, there is also times of great revival. People come to know God through natural disasters, through earthquakes, through famines. And I will never say that God caused those things, because we live in a fallen world. When man, when Adam said, cool, I'll eat that thing I'm not supposed to eat, and I'll disobey God because I feel like it, he also said, you've upset the equilibrium. And in come thorns and thistles. And that can be a metaphor for anything that chooses to fall apart. For our lives. And um, I was having this conversation with uh, Roque and Rosie the other night. Um, when Roke's dad is an atheist... But he's come to realize that we have great technological advances. We have wonderful things. We have uh, abilities to, to, to fix people, to remove cancers, to, to do all sorts of wonderful things. And yet, we ourselves can't fix our relationships. We destroy ourselves. God does not enter the equation and say, go and bomb those guys. We do that of our own choice. We are unregenerate and broken and in a despicable place without God. So we do believe that God has all things under control, but when Adam sinned, he, he uh, God said, oh, cool, that's the way you want to play it? Have some control. See what you do with it. See how well you can run galactic management associates by yourself. We also believe that marriage is the union of one man and one woman. Yes, there is stuff in the Bible that talks about uh, polygamy. But we believe that Jesus said, there shall be joined together and there shall be one flesh. I believe he set a precedent for one man and one woman. And that uniting in marriage puts us into a place of being one flesh. And there is scripture to support that. There's New Testament scripture too, which I left off there. But that uh, one fleshness begins to bring us back to the image of God. When Adam was first created, God said, let us create man in our own image. And God made man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. After that, he took the woman out of Adam and presented her to him and said, this is Eve. And he goes, cool, I'll call her woman because she was taken out of me. So, the the reunification of the man and the woman is the creation of one flesh. So, a marriage of a man and a man or a woman and a woman cannot be one flesh because they're two incompatible parts. They can be friends and they can sit together and and they can live together and they can be happy, as ever after, but they cannot be married. It cannot be called a marriage. We believe in the lordship of Jesus Christ. We are not our own gods. He is God, and we lay our lives down for him as he laid down his life for us. He was born of a virgin. If you want to go into the technology of of bloodlines, we believe that Jesus had to be born of a virgin so that there was no corruption of the bloodline. So people say, yeah, but hang on, hang on. Uh. So Joseph had no part in this. correct? And Mary had a part in this. Surely Mary had some corrupt blood to corrupt the bloodline. Yes. So how does Jesus get to be incorrupt? Here's my theory. (laughs) Jesus is not half Joseph and half Mary. Jesus is all God implanted in Mary's womb already fertilized because Jesus had to be born he had to be God born he could turn up a UFO I guess but in order to experience life as we experience life he had to enter life the same way that we enter life Mary's ovum were not fertilized by the Holy Spirit God put himself in Mary's womb so that he could be made flesh And dwell among us. And because he did not have the sin nature that came from either of his parents, he was able to live a sinless life. Because he was God, he was able to perform miracles. And because he was man, he could sacrifice himself and die on the cross for the human race. So through his death, his shed blood, through his bodily resurrection... He has restored us to a place of relationship between man and God. We believe that for a man to be saved he must believe in his heart and confess with his mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yeah. This is by grace through faith, and not of our own actions or deeds. No amount of good do gooding or bunny hugging and tree hugging and saving whales will get you to heaven. It is an act of faith that is followed by a confession with your mouth publicly that Jesus Christ is Lord. We believe in water baptism for believers and that it follows repentance from dead works. Like I said earlier, this is an outward sign of something that has happened, a deep work that has happened inside your being. We believe in the infilling of the Holy Spirit and that by his power, the Christian is enabled to live a godly life. Why do we receive the Holy Spirit? So that we might have power to be his witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I believe that gift is available to all of us to have power. Not so we can have a better prayer language or have like, you know, the spiritual gifts. Those things are not to be consumed upon ourselves. Those things are so that we can be witnesses and so that we can make others become disciples of Jesus Christ too. We believe in the celebration of Holy Communion for believers. Because Jesus said, unless a man eats my flesh and drinks my blood, he has no part in me. And we have to recognize that this is a covenant that he made between himself and between us who do not deserve that covenant to be made. And that when we take communion as believers, that we reaffirm the covenant that we have with him. That we become one with him. Obviously, there's other issues. We're not, we'll talk about communion another time. But um, it is an affirmation of the covenant that we have with him. We believe that prayer is an essential part of our dynamic relationship with God. It is a two-way conversation with God our Father. We believe that every person can pray. We can cry out to God as an unsaved person. That's a form of prayer. But we believe that uh, God wants a relationship with us. And this is what people find really hard to swallow. Just last week in the press, the week before, I can't remember, somebody criticized Mike Pence. Who knows who Mike Pence is? Vice President of United States of America. Bible-believing Christian. He said, every day I make time to talk to God, and God talks to me. And they said, what kind of nutter believes that uh, God talks to him? Is he hearing his voices in his head? He needs to go to an asylum. We believe that we have a live, active, two-way relationship with God, our Father, and that He speaks to us. Sometimes, He even uses an audible voice. It has happened to me. I have heard a voice, and I looked around and I go, I'm the only person in the house. Where did that voice come from? It may not Irish. It, was... it may have been Irish. <laughs> But sometimes God speaks to us through his spirit. Sometimes God speaks to us through his word. And sometimes he speaks with an Irish accent. <laughs> sometimes he speaks in Sean at the taps. You've got to be careful there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. I understand the Irish sometimes. <laughs> I don't understand that too. So it is a two-way relationship. And we believe that that prayer is something... That is a time between you and God, just as you spend time with your spouse, chatting, discussing, going through the, the things of the day. That it doesn't need to be full of repetitive phrases. It, there's, not, there's no verbs and words and adjectives that are required to punctuate our conversation with God. We talk to him as if you talk to your friend, as if you talk to your father. You know why? Because he's your father. And he doesn't expect us to to have a ritual or a routine. He expects us to converse with him and have a relationship with him. We believe that we are called to preach the good news of the gospel to the entire world and to make disciples. True followers of Christ and his teachings. And what is a disciple? One who follows. And we as disciples of Christ are required to make other disciples of Christ. We are to lead them the way we follow him and ultimately they must have a relationship with him too. And there are tools, there are weapons, there are purple books and other things that help us to be disciples and to make disciples. And we should never ever take these lightly. We believe that we are to love the poor, the widows and orphans. The Bible says that this is true religion when you Remember the widows and the orphans in their distress. And we demonstrate this by visiting the sick, by visiting the poor, by helping them with clothing and feeding and living the gospel in front of them. Sometimes we speak. Sometimes we love them. We believe that the church is not a building or a venue, but is the body of Christ with Jesus as the head. And Mike talked about that last week. We believe, this is not in the creed, this is our creed, in servant team leadership. We do not believe that there is a man of God that sits up here and is special. We are all men and women of God. We all have the same relationship with God and we have uh, the ability to lead. We believe that we can create leaders, we can create an environment where, leadership, where gifts are expressed, where gifts are encouraged, and gifts are released. We believe that worship is a lifestyle. It's not just something we do on Sunday mornings for 35 or 40 minutes singing a few songs. It's not just something we do when we meet together. It's something we live. Our whole lives must be an act of worship. We believe that giving is an act of worship. Whether you give to church, whether you give to street people, whether you give time, whether you give money, whether you give gifts, giving is a form of worship. It's not an obligation. It's not a religious duty. But it must be done with joy. We believe that Jesus will one day come again in glory and power and will judge the living and the dead and rule in power and love forever. We believe this thing. Now, what I will say is that there is not a single statement that I have discussed today that we, as the elders of the church, do not believe. Some of it may be difficult, and that is the point at which. Faith comes into the equation. But this is what Ephesians 4 says. So Christ gave, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers to equip his people, his people, that's you, for works of service. That's not something I do. That's something we all do. So that the body of Christ may be built up, the whole body of Christ, until we reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of, It's not me, it's not Taps, it's not Michael Simba. Christ is the head of this church. James 1, verse 2 to 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. We lead because we want you to be strong. We don't want you to be a Jenga tower. We want you to be a solid tower. Nevertheless, 2 Timothy 2.19, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Like I said earlier, there's much that we don't understand. We don't understand the mechanisms of creation. There's much that's missing. There's gaps. But we believe that God gives us what we need. Being a Christian is an act of faith. It's not only an act of reason. It's not only an act of figuring things out. It's not only what we do. It's an act of faith. We have to believe that he is God and he made us and he wants us to serve him John 20 29 then Jesus told them, because you have seen me you have believed blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed the point is that we will all be faced with this question by somebody at some day did God say this thing in his word that was the first line the devil used against man did God really say that if you eat of this tree you will die Did God say a lot of things? There's a lot of stuff in the word. And as soon as we question it, we are in danger. And the truth that we all need to take home is, if you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. So Father, we pray today for your word. We pray that what we need to hear, we've heard, what we need to take into our hearts and into our spirits, we will take in. We pray that you will challenge our thinking, you will challenge our act of faith, you will challenge our lives to, to check us, to see if we have lined our lives up with the word of God. But if there's a man or a woman here today that, is, that when I spoke about the joy, the, the, the amazing experience I had by being born again, if, if that is something that you've never experienced and it's something that you want, we would love to pray with you, we'd love to talk to you, we would love to lead you to a place where you can experience that same thing. And uh, Taps and I will be down the front for a few minutes. We'd love you to come and talk to us. We'd love you to lead you in a prayer, if that's you. You have been listening to a podcast from Kingdom People Church in Harare. For more details, please go to www.kingdompeoplechurch.org.